Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 9. Sermon text this evening comes from Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, hear the word of the Lord. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and on all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat, f- the, eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For your lifeblood, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many, come, as, many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people of the whole earth, the, of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. 
A number of years ago, I was on my way home from work. I was listening to the radio, and I heard on the radio a Senate confirmation hearing. Someone had been nominated for the Supreme Court, and they were being interviewed. The opposition, the people who didn't want him to be confirmed, he was probably in his mid-50s. I'm not entirely sure how old he was. They went back all the way to his high school years, and they gathered reports that he had been drunk in his high school years and that he had done some things he shouldn't have had in his high school years. And so they said that he shouldn't be nominated to the Supreme Court because of what he'd done in his high school years. I remember hearing that and thinking this is a great example of the cancel culture in which we live. I also remember thinking that, praise God, that I belong to Christ, because in Christ we all get a new beginning. Genesis is a book about beginnings. The name Genesis, the word Genesis means beginning. Noah, the story of Noah, is about a new beginning. He's a kind of second Adam. It shows us in the story of Noah that we have a God of new beginnings. There are three reasons why, from this passage, from the Noahic covenant, three reasons why people ought to want a relationship with our God. People ought to want a relationship with our God for three reasons. They're here in the passage. First, no one values life like our God values life. No, secondly, no one has the power to create new beginning like our God. And third, no one can take the evil and the wickedness and curses of this life and this world and turn them into a blessing. Those are the three things. Now, first, the reason why people ought to want a relationship with our God is that he values life. He values all of life, but particularly human life. We see that in the opening, verses 1 through 4. Noah is told to be fruitful, and his descendants to be fruitful and multiply. It's very similar to what Adam and Eve were told to do by God, to be fruitful and multiply, to essentially to flourish, have children, inherit the earth. We also see, though, that unlike the initial be fruitful and multiply, we're told that the animals are going to fear humans now, and that Noah and his descendants are allowed to eat the animals. They are allowed to be carnivorous. We're also told that they're not to take blood, the blood of an animal, and eat it. Now, why does it say that? Well, in Leviticus 17, we're told why. Here's just a short snippet from Genesis, uh, Leviticus 11, excuse me, 17, verse 11. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. From the very beginning, we see that blood is a sacred thing to God. It symbolizes life. That's why the atonement, sacrificial atonement, is made with blood to show that life was demanded for transgressing God's law. But in verses 5 and 6, we're told very clearly that because man is made in God's image, that God will require a reckoning for anyone who takes the life of man. I find it interesting that the great killers in the 20th century, whether that's Mao or Stalin or anyone else, 
They disregarded the idea that man was imago Dei, made in the image of God. They didn't think that there was any value to human life. They didn't think that man had any image in him. Today, who are the people who are getting married and having families and children and being fruitful and multiplying? It's usually people who are religious and specifically, a lot of times, Christian because we value life. Why? Because we're made in God's image. Now, verses 5 and 6 have traditionally been interpreted by John Calvin, G.I. Williamson, and many others to say that the, the Lord has given the power of the sword to the state. And if a, a man is convicted of murder, if historically this is the way that this text has been applied and understood, that if he has been tried, prove, his guilt has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt, and it's been carried out with due process, that the state has the right and authority by God to execute justice and to take the life of a murderer. That's the way it's been understood traditionally. Now, there are Christians and Reformed uh, theologians who differ with that traditional understanding. I side usually with the traditional aspect. I think God does give the power of the sword to the state. But John Calvin says something interesting. He says it's really broader than that. We also should think that the sword that God gives to the church is the sword of the Spirit. He says this. he's, He's talking about forgiving people who have sinned against us. He says this. Speaking of forgiveness, it is utterly against human nature to love those who hate us, to repay their evil deeds with benefits, to return blessings for reproaches. But we must remember not to consider men's evil intention, but to look upon the image of God in them, which cancels and effaces their transgressions with its beauty and dignity, allures us to love and to embrace them. What Calvin is saying is, What does God deserve? We might want to give people what they deserve when they come into the church, and we know that they've done something to harm us, but what does God deserve? Because they too bear the image of God. And to think of it that way, we must remember that God has canceled our sins. And when we look into other people's lives in the church, then we ought to remember how God has canceled our sins and therefore see the image of God in them and love them. The church has a different role than the state. One last thought, Paul. When Paul, who before he was Paul, was Saul, and he not only looked on while people were murdered, but he gave sanction to it, Not murderers, by the way. These are Christians, people who are innocent. And then Paul, or Saul at that time, later Paul, came to the Jerusalem, came to the the leaders in Jerusalem and said that he had become a Christian and accepted Christ as Lord. How do you think they felt about him at that point? They extended the right hand of fellowship to him ultimately. So the first reason why you or anyone ought to want a relationship with Christ and our God is because our God values life. He values life so much that he 
He protects it in the power of the sword given to the state. And he, he flourishes it in the church by welcoming people into our midst. That's the first reason why you should want a relationship with God. But the second reason is this, that God creates a new beginning. We see this especially in the covenant made with Noah. The whole covenant is about a new beginning. He makes a covenant not only with Noah, but through Noah, all of creation. I think it's a unique covenant in that sense. All of creation. He promises never to flood the earth again. He also gives a sign the sign of the rainbow. Sidney Gradonis has pointed this out, that unlike the later covenant signs of Passover and circumcision and also the Lord's Supper and baptism, human beings cannot control this sign. In other words, he's saying this is a, a sovereign sign, an unconditional sign. There are many people who never were circumcised or who never took the Passover in the Old Testament. There are many people today don't profess Christ, never are baptized, never take the Lord's Supper, but everybody, just about everybody in the world has seen a rainbow, haven't they? It's a sign of God's sovereignty, his control over the whole world. It's also a sign of his beauty. Rainbow is a beautiful sign. It's not a bloody sign like, like circumcision. In Revelation, let me, let me give you two quotes, one from Ezekiel and one from Revelation. It's very interesting. In the rest of the Bible, when Ezekiel sees a throne in Ezekiel chapter 1, he also sees a rainbow. Like the appearance of the rainbow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. When I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. In Revelation chapter 4, John also sees a throne. When he sees a throne, it says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven and with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. The throne is a sign of God's sovereign control over everything, and we see it when we look at his throne. Only he has the power to make a new beginning. Only he has the power to create new life, to breathe life into people. I love to read Augustine, and Augustine, in his confessions, he looked back on his youth when he was... uh, promiscuous in his youth. He did things he should not have done in his youth. He confessed those sins. And later on in his confessions, he would say that to really serve God and to love God, we have to see his beauty and serve him just for the beauty of who he is, not because we're trying to get something from God, not because we're trying to control God, but rather we can see the beauty of the world and we can trust that he has our best interest at heart. And so we serve him just because he's God, just because he's sovereign, just because he's a ruler and we are in his image. So the second reason people should want a relationship is because God creates all things new. 
Here's the third thing that we see in the Noahic Covenant. We see, well, particularly after the Noahic Covenant, that he can turn curses into blessings. When Noah descends from the ark in verses 18 through 20, or 18 through 19, it looks at first like this is going to be a glorious new creation without the stain of the original fall. So Ham, Shem, and Japheth, they get off the ark, they disperse, and all the peoples of the earth are populated from his family. But we have some clues in verse 20 that this new beginning won't be a complete new beginning because Noah begins to till the soil of the earth. Remember, Noah was supposed to bring relief from the ground of the earth, from the ground. That's why Lamech named him Noah, meaning relief. But sadly, even now, I guess he's 600 some odd years old, he's still toiling the ground. It shows us that the original curse hasn't been lifted. He's still a man of the soil. Then he gets drunk. He lays naked in his tent. This would have been a humiliating act, a a shameful act. And just to give you a sense of that, I could read some other Old Testament passages or many Old Testament passages, but one of them would be Habakkuk chapter 2, where Habakkuk says, 2 verse 15, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. It's a kind of curse. It's a kind of humiliating sin to get drunk and lay naked to where people see you, especially in the ancient Near Eastern culture. Then his son, Ham, comes and sees Noah naked, and he tells his brothers, for this he's cursed. Why is he cursed? What's the big deal? I know in our culture, today it's somewhat common to see people on the side of the road, maybe in a major city. But what's the big deal? The big deal, the under, in order to understand what's happening, is that in that culture and in that day, to take no pity on your father, uh, to have no sorrow for him when he has done a shameful deed, to offer him no help, that was to disgrace him and to dishonor him. Now, if I went home to my parents' house tonight and I went out on the back porch and my dad was passed out drunk and naked for the neighbors to see, I'm sure he would love me using this illustration right now, but if that were the case, I don't think he would do that. But if that were the case, I would say, oh, dad you doing? Let, let's, let's get you covered up. I'd probably call one of my brothers and we'd, you know, we'd put, a, we'd put a blanket over him. We'd probably pick him up and take him to his room and cover him and make sure he sleeps it off and then probably keep it a secret, you know. I don't think that would ever happen, but that's probably the way we would do it. And that's not the way that Ham did it. I think the implication is that he was amused by this. He was perhaps joking about this, although it doesn't say that. So then... The other two children, Shem and Japheth, get a garment and they walk backwards. It tells us twice that they don't even look at him. The reason they say that is because they're doing an innocent act of honoring their their father. It's not a shameful. They're not looking at him. For this, 
they get blessings and Ham, particularly his son Canaan, gets a curse. Verse 24 through 27, Noah curses Ham's son Canaan. Now we are told throughout the Old Testament that the Canaanites are enemies of God's people. But particularly in excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 7, when Noah, Moses is talking about coming into the promised land, he says this about the Canaanites. When you, when you come into the land, you must defeat them. You must devote them to complete destruction. Deuteronomy 7 verses 1 through 3. You shall make no covenant with them, show no mercy to them, and you shall not intermarry with them. The Canaanites are cursed. We're also given the indication that the Canaanites are also sexually perverse. In Leviticus 18, the whole chapter is about regulations concerning nakedness. In fact, their nakedness is mentioned 24 times in that chapter, and it starts by in this way. Moses, the Lord spoke to Moses, and he said, verse 3, When you come into the land, you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your your sister. It goes on and on and on talking about it's shameful to look upon the nakedness of those who are your relatives who are close to you. And case in point are the bad example of Canaan. Shem gets a blessing and Japheth. Shem gets the prime blessing. Here's what Derek Kidner has said about Shem. Of the three oracles, only that on Shem uses God's personal name, Yahweh. The significance of that fact begins to emerge at chapter 12, verse 1, and will dominate the Old Testament. Since Shem means name, there may well be a play on words here. Japheth also gets a blessing, but somewhat unique he is told that he will dwell in the tents of Shem. Now, when does that happen in the Old Testament? When does that fulfillment occur? Hang on to that question. Noah lives for 350 more years after disembarking the ark, and then he dies. That's the story of Noah, a total of 950 years. Now, in order to understand God's blessing on Japheth and his blessing on anyone, really, we have to understand the new Noah, the one who does bring us relief, the one who brings us not even back to the garden, but beyond the garden, what was originally promised to Adam and Eve, the, the fruit of life, the tree of life that was promised to them if they had obeyed. What we find in Christ is that he is a new man who brings a complete new beginning. We are told that for all who are in Christ, if you are in Christ, then you are Shem's offspring or Abraham's offspring. Because Abraham descended from the line of Shem. So did the Messiah. But if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. There is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, what we find is that no matter what you have done or what your parents have done or what your parents' parents have done, that if you put your faith in Christ, you can have a new beginning. Even the Canaanites, 
even those who have been cursed in the Old Testament. In Christ, there is neither circumcised or uncircumcised. Or to put it differently, when Jesus Christ went to the cross, he was stripped bare. He was uncovered. He was humiliated. He was stripped and beaten and broken. Why? In order that our shame and disgrace could be covered so that you could have a relationship with him, even though you are a sinner. The only way to approach the throne of God in his power and justice and might is through Jesus Christ, the new Adam. One last thought before we end. I love to look at rainbows, but if you know, notice a rainbow, you can never see a rainbow on a purely sunny day. You can never see a rainbow on a purely dark, overcast day. It's only after a storm or after rain and after clouds are parting when the light breaks through, that's when you see a rainbow. I think there's something in that. Because most people today in our world, they look at the cross, they look at Jesus Christ, and what they see is something that doesn't make sense to them. Uh, They don't see anything that, that they see blood and guts and gore, and they say, this is really primitive and backwards. It looks really dark to people. But what we, we see is that for those who look on the cross and stare at the cross, that eventually the light will break through. Eventually, it will create new, new life in them. One of the ways to translate rainbow, I'm not the first person to think this, is in, in the Hebrew language is actually a bow and arrow. Believe it or not, it can be translated the same way. And Charles Spurgeon and others have noticed that when you look at a rainbow, if you think of it as a bow and arrow, that bow and arrow is not pointed towards the earth. The bow and arrow is pointed towards heaven. It's pointed towards God, and it shows us what? That Jesus Christ would be sent to take the arrow of our misfortune, (laughs) our sin and judgment upon himself. And when you look at the cross, you see the judgment of God and the wrath of God coming down upon Christ. But then you also see the light. You see the grace. You see the cost of what it takes to have a new beginning, the atonement for our sins. So we should be the kind of people that celebrate this life, recognize the cost that it took to allow us to have a relationship with God, to be grateful for it, to rejoice when we see it in the lives of others. I go so far as to say, even outside of our own church, I want to see people come to know the Lord and grow in the Lord and submit their lives totally to the Lord. So when we see the rainbow in the clouds, let us think of God's grace and the cost of it that he paid because he valued human life. He valued your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us a sign. It's a a glorious sign in the rainbow. It's a sign of your beauty, a sign of your covenant that you will never judge and flood the earth again. It's a sign of your sovereign power and control over everything that happens. It's a sign that still... Lord, is around your throne, and so we praise you for that. We pray, Lord, that we would be people who study your word, 
and have a deeper and deeper relationship with you so that we might be grateful and humbled by the cost that it took for us to be made new. We thank you that what you did in creating life anew in Noah, you really brought to fruition in Christ, and that one day you will indeed create a new heavens and a new earth without any trace of sin. We thank you for this glorious hope that we have. May we be messengers, carriers of this great hope to those who don't know you. In Jesus' name, amen.